I'm glad to be back for another conversation in our Easier Business interview series. I'm Patrick Pittman, and I am glad to have Jason Snyder of Summit Ecommerce with us today. We have as a theme in a lot of our conversations around the Easier Business podcast, how to have less grind, more flow. And I started the project because I wanted my next 20 years in business to be easier than the first 20. And as I'm looking at Jason and his background, he's got the beach background. And I wish I could spend more time. I have to say this way. I wish that my next 20 years, I have more time on the beach. Mm-hmm. I have more vacations. And that's so much of the owner's dilemma in a business is not um, making time to take rest and not feeling you have enough time to, or not enough profit left over at the end of the year. We're talking here in January, and it's a time for us to look back and see how the performance of the past year is. And it's always, you know, it can be discouraging sometimes. You look back and say, God, where did it all go? Where do I find, where's the rest that I can bring to my life for all the activity that I've thrown at this business in the last year? And so when I talked with Jason recently, it, it just really encouraged me, both in the work um, that I do with clients in the e-commerce space, but also my own business and wanting to sort of take some of the lessons that I think he's helping people with every day. And um, I think you're really going to enjoy listening to this conversation because it's going to hopefully get us closer to that easier business vision. So welcome, Jason. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Is the the beach and the palm trees background, is it uh, what your customers also want for themselves? Uh, in some fashion, yes. Uh, so funny little story behind that is more of a pandemic-induced uh, part of my personal branding of uh, having moving my office back to an attic storage area at the pandemic and having to have a background. And after about six months, I turned it off a couple of times and clients said, why aren't you at the beach? <laughs> So I kept it on going forward. So that's part of my uh, online uh, meeting persona thing. So, but yes, it's it's also intentional as well to remind a little bit about you know what's things all about. There are some other things that balance out and make it important. So yeah, there's some intentionality as well now. Yeah, yeah, and I think that the, the customers or the clients you're talking about, these are basically going through your bookkeeping plus program at Summit Ecommerce. And so that's part of what we want to introduce and talk about here. But in that context, I think we're also really talking about how do we get a handle on our desire to grow as an entrepreneur. We want to feel like we're moving forward, that things are getting bigger and better. We hope that growth is not just in top line sales, but in profit that yields the kind of rest you know that we're hoping for deeply. And yet there's so much... One of the things that that I think you've said to me is there's a thousand small decisions that make up whether you have a profit at the end of the year. And so I kind of want to talk around what those things start to look like. And this in some ways can be a conversation that uses accounting terms, bookkeeping frameworks, and yet underlying all that, there's so much emotion in this subject of money. And so I think it's going to be a conversation a little bit about more practical profit um, encouraging behaviors, but also I think there's also a conversation about how we reflect upon this big emotional issue of money and whether we have enough and what we do to keep it or spend it. 
right? Yeah, you're, you're correct. There's a, a huge emotional part of business, which is the money part. And that's also part of, ends up being part of our, our work as well as helping clients uh, maybe sort through those, some of those decisions, if it becomes more emotional than logic or business-based, you know, one, there needs to be a balance uh, to some degree and not skew in one way or too much to the other. I've observed that sometimes the subject of money is too emotionally charged for people to come and sit with it regularly. And so it's something that they put off when they feel having more spaciousness or more, more uh, courage, maybe is the word. And of course, you know, if you have customers, they're never asking about your profit. They're never asking about your bookkeeping. Of course, the, the accountants are this time of year, but it's a thing that we can put off. And so I think one of the uh, values that your program can bring people is a consistency of returning and returning and returning to this matter of how is it going? What are you spending? Where is you spending it? Do you know why? Do you have a good reason? And even just you know, one of the sort of phrases that, that my wife like, loves to use um, in the context of our children is to come alongside them. Can I, can I come alongside you in this thing that feels hard? And I suppose that that's part of what you're, what you're really doing is you're coming alongside business owners for things that feel hard. And that's, that's not just bookkeeping. It's just money under our right. question. Yeah, you have a couple of points there. One is there is, I think most of it's driven by fear. And fear comes from a lack of knowledge or, or an understanding of how it's, it's in many cases, it's a mystery to some uh, business owners of what's really going on with the P&L statement, what's my balance sheet, what's my cash flow statement really telling me. And so that's part of it. We look at our relationship with clients as partner, we're partnering with them, giving them clarity, giving them knowledge, feeding them uh, how to make decisions, uh, not telling them what to do, but to guiding them and, and answering questions and things. So we're there to demystify and put in behaviors and practices that can help that accelerate that process of making it less of a mystery and making it less of something to be afraid of. Because most responses when I ask about that is, well, I just didn't know what I was going on. And then reverting back to those behaviors of bank balance accounting, bank balance decision-making and things which we can talk more about when we talk about Papa first and things. Well, why don't you tell us what that means? And there's a formula in profit first. Maybe you can explain where that word even term comes from, but there's a formula that makes it different than sort of the, the normal. So why don't you take us through what that looks like? Sure. I mean, most people are uh, pretty familiar with the sales minus expenses equals profit. Uh, that's the common gap knowledge. Uh, tax code is based on it. So it's very pervasive in, in everyday business decision-making. The profit first mentality or intentionality is, uh, you know, you got your sales uh, minus profit equals your expenses. So you're setting an intentionality from the beginning of what the business is about. You're, even if it's a smaller percentage in the beginning, uh, that you're intentionally setting aside money for profit, that you're resourcing, you are intentional, that you, you're there to make profit, or all of us are in business to make profit whether you want a smaller percentage or a larger percentage, you're setting that intentionality. And that's the, the core beginning of profit first is being intentional with where you're directing your cash and where to use it. And I don't want to sound like too basic, mm -hmm. but why does profit matter? Mm -hmm. 
profit, uh, the fundamental, my view of interpretation of it is profit is the value you're creating versus the, the cost or the, the things that go into creating that value. And so, so we always need to be uh, in a positive on that. Because if you're consuming more than you're creating, you're not solving a problem in, in the big scope of the economy and, and value delivery. So you need to be profitable to, to some degree, especially from the beginning. Because if you're not profitable, that's telling you that you're not creating enough value with your offerings or your service or your product. I think there's there's also with profit comes the capacity to find rest. Yep. Yep. And it's a it's a reward, however other people want to interpret that there's a factor of that. Yes, I'm I'm delivering value, I'm creating something. And it's also restful for for like you mentioned of because you're out there creating something and you're you're profitable, it's sustainable. Uh, you know it's just sustainable from as long as you're factoring all your expenses, which we can go into a little bit more later on as well as those when you're creating the value and you have some left over, you know that you've got something going and it's sustainable. Is profit sort of a function of how many times you can say no? to these sort of million ideas on what you could spend on? Because I think related to this also is the intention to grow. And so someone might say, profit comes later. We're about growth right now. We're about building up the valuation of the business and growing. And so, Mm -hmm. yes, we'll get to profit later. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, some some of that is the intention of the business. So like I mentioned before about being intentionally profitable from the beginning, Many companies who take that growth first mindset is acquiring customers and then trying to figure out later how to deliver profitability. And my experience teaches me, and even if there's you know unicorns or other stories like that of companies that have succeeded, for every one of those, there's probably five, ten thousand other companies that haven't achieved that and things. And so it's a it's a I'd say call it a fallacy to be honest that that's going to deliver long term sustainable value. It's a it's also a symptom of, I think, easy access to capital for, for a number of years that have allowed those scenarios to, to play out. Uh, but in general, working with clients, my experience is that never pays off uh, for anybody. And in, in you may be able to sell the business or pass along and get additional valuation or capital coming in. But my experience teaches me that that's very rare, that it turns into a sustainable business that's profitable for the owners. I found myself in the living room of a business owner recently and for many hours after the dinner was over and done, I heard what was a big sense of dismay that after more than a decade, uh, this guy had wanted to get his business valued. He did a sort of professional valuation um, at the end of the year. It's now, you know, a month later, and he's presented with the, 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 the sort of humbling fact that when you don't have retained earnings and you don't have profit, the profit multiple doesn't look very good. When you try a multiple-based valuation, it's like, no, there's, you know, uh, whatever number it is times zero isn't, or times, you know, isn't, isn't a very big number. And it's such a... Um, 
a soul-searching moment for him to find himself looking at that kind of valuation. And top-line numbers have been, you know, seven figures and above and beyond. It's like there's something, there's a real business here. It's just, in the end, he's like, I just was never focused on on retained earnings or profit. Or are, are those things the same? Maybe you could speak to what retained earning is and profit and and what it really um, starts to look like for a business that's been at it for many years. Yeah, and so the on the accounting term, retained earnings is the net effect after the end of the year is basically closing out your net profit with the business to the balance sheet of and that's the accumulated earnings over a given period of time of how long, generally how long the business has been operating and things. And so retained earnings is something looked at of a cumulative uh, effect on the balance sheet. For us in Profit First, Profit is a much different formula like we just talked about earlier. And there are a difference between our approach and then how GAP approaches those those two things. And so we're looking at what's the, what's the capability of the business uh, to operate, what's its direct cost, what's its uh, real revenue, which is a term of your material subcontractors, uh, revenue minus your material subcontractors, that's your real revenue, that's the amount that you can allocate to these different uh, accounts in the profit first method. So it's two totally different ways of looking at revenue, it can come on profitability and things. Yeah. You know, one of the things that in our earlier conversation, you encouraged me to take a closer look at was my chart of accounts and to reformulate it in such a way that is really useful to me and not just this, the default chart of accounts that comes with zero or QuickBooks whenever you get started. Mm-hmm. And I was meeting with my accountant last week and I said, so basically we can do whatever we want. Like we can't do this wrong in terms of our chart of accounts, how we move things in terms of cost of goods sold or whatever it is. She's like, it's just for your decision-making, Patrick, it's just whatever helps you. And so isn't that one of the things that you help your your people go through this bookkeeping plus program is to really get that into a place that's meaningful, not just out of the box standard. Correct. Yeah. It's something we, we do have a template that we work with clients at least set up in the beginning. Uh, We don't impose it on them, but we offer it as a way for them to get quicker clarity and looking at their, their books and their reports as we call it, fingertip reports, you know, once we close the books for a month, that means that that uh, period of time is easily accessible for them by clicking in their QuickBooks or their zero and looking at the PL report. So our thought is, why don't we make it easy for them to deduce of where they're spending their money? Again, kind of aligned with the problem first method of creating buckets of where you're allocating funds for certain expenses. And so we'll use the sales and marketing uh, bucket as an example of let's say we're running 10% of real revenue and allocating it to a sales and marketing account. So let's correspond that on the P&L so that uh, the business owner can roughly see of, hey, I'm spending uh, 10% of my 100,000 and 10,000 is going that, where am I spending that money? And so what we do is we create a bucket and all of the activity around sales and marketing goes into that bucket. So it roughly corresponds with what's available in your profit or your sales and marketing account when you're practicing profit first. So it gives them alignment and we can go over it and determine what goes into that account. And that's sometimes also an eye-opening uh, discussion when they realize really what they're spending to attract a customer 
what they're spending to to bring traffic to their store, uh, just depending on what their different business model is. Having that conversation like, oh, I hadn't thought about it from that angle because many times industries are focused around these gap terms or these, I'll say, growth terms of like, you know, customer acquisition costs, you know, what's the rate of return on paid acquisition? Well, what about your agency? What about your VA? What about the, the collateral material? All the things that go into creating that, that should be part of that conversation, not just the paid traffic costs. And things. So, Yeah, I think that's been eye-opening. I, I was in a conversation yesterday with a woman who basically wants to be more intentional about creating a marketing budget. And she was telling me the story how she's so much of her business, she's called it as grown organically. She hasn't sort of tried to accelerate the growth within her mind, more marketing. And so she didn't have the sense really of having a marketing budget, but we went through the conversation and realized that so much of her, with the way her business model is structured, is not so traditionally e-commerce in a product sense, but it's highly dependent upon marketing labor costs. And that is an extraordinary fraction of her whole expense profile. And she's like, oh, that's, I guess I have a marketing budget. It's just all spread across labor and payroll. Do you find that a common thing? And what what, what does someone do with that once they kind of reach that discovery? How do they keep the chart of accounts to make that more obvious to them? What's the... And and so like using the payroll is a really good example because the numbers are bigger in most cases. And so it makes a really big impact on where that should be allocated. And so we actually split that up uh, for clients that have either you know, VA type of engagements or employees, W-2 wages. Um, we don't have a single account that that's all allocated to. We will have requests that the client provide us a monthly uh, feedback or very uh, good, like where they're, what their people are doing. And it doesn't have to be exact, but if they have an employee who's half admin and half marketing, uh, we'll have them update that on a monthly basis so that we can allocate to the appropriate cost account so they know what the spend is in a particular area. And so like some of the groupings that we've made in our template is sales and marketing, uh, general administrative, website technology, and then owner's compensation. And we'll add as the business uh, has higher turnover or particular focus areas, we'll create another grouping around those things, but those are like the, the four basic ones that we'll start with with the client. And what ends up happening when people start to do that, factoring in all the labor and payroll and other time you know, activity they're paying for that they maybe hadn't classified under marketing before, what do they find? Clarity. And I think like your conversation that you pointed out is, is very similar to once we've done it a couple of times and gone through with it with them, they're like, ah, I see. Yeah, it's starting to make sense of uh, how it works. It gives them more clarity, which is, that's our goal is clarity and systems so that they can and create habits around those things so that they can operate on that and have confidence in us doing it for them. In this long late night conversation I had, that was sort of the, the despair over a decade without profit. One of the things that came out of that was the business owner described himself as an artist. Mm-hmm. He's like, Listen, Patrick, I'm, I'm not a numbers guy. I, mean, I never was. I just never was like focused on that. I just have this vision of things he wants to do. And, and one of the ways that expresses itself is through creative marketing content, sometimes manifests as video and other um, things that you know, are creative, 
and and one of the discoveries when you start to allocate all that labor correctly to the marketing category it, one of the one of the observations um, was that there's not enough left over for getting that beautiful marketing thing you've done in front of enough eyeballs or enough people so wonderful creative very small pay-per-click or traffic or ad budget to send it out to the world. There just was a, just kind of a misallocation in some respects. Do you find, I mean, that your, your bookkeeping plus program helps people maybe come to that conclusion sooner or have some check on that? Or how do you help people through that kind of dilemma? Uh, Yeah. So you're pointing out that there's a, personality driven, especially early on with the business owners or clients that we're working with. And part of uh, my goal in working with them is to make those, make them aware of those things. Uh, like they're really focused on a particular that they're really good at. Uh, our counsel is, okay, that's great. If you want to focus on the area and you're not looking to add to your skill set to compensate for your lack of knowledge in accounting, then find a good partner to work with uh, in that area. And same with like the marketing you know, work with a coach or somebody to get, because your product is valuable. You put it out there into the world, you know, it makes a difference. It's almost uh, an aberration or a, uh, um, can't think of the word, abdication if you don't put it out into the world and get it in front of more people to help solve their problems. And so when you realize you have gaps, look for partners that, trusted partners that you can work with that align with your, your goals and what you're trying to achieve. And obviously us is accounting in the bookkeeping area, but marketing, uh, there's lots of other areas that there's other people you can engage with to, to fill those gaps. Uh, if you're not looking to add that skill set uh, to yourself or hire somebody uh, internally to manage it. Yeah. I think you know, the, the whole conversation is looking at businesses that are probably under $10 million in revenue, right? Because there's a certain point where the, professionalization of your management team comes in and that, you know, that chief financial officer brings the kind of discipline that you as the creative artist owner never had and probably never will have. Um, and there, you know, one of my projects is with a, a business that's a hundred million dollars and that's kind of the exception in a lot of my work. So it's a little bit um, both refreshing and, you know, different to have an executive vice president of marketing who has a very clear plan, you know, She's got a lot of discipline and how she's imagining the budgets across that marketing. But for those businesses that are under 10 million, and I, I could say under 5 million, but it's amazing how up to 10 million, even beyond, there are so many business owners, which I think is the audience for this interview series, who still maintain a pretty firm hand on marketing, marketing and sales. And I just I just came from a conversation this morning over coffee where a business that's on the Inc. Uh, 5,000 list, fastest growing, last couple of years, seven on the way to eight figures. And he said, yeah, we let go of our director of marketing. We just couldn't really turn over enough control for that director of marketing to do their job. And we eventually just let them go because, um, you know, the owners as two partners, we just we just want to do it. Like we can't not do it. And it's so much of that I think is also a function of the desire for growth. Right. And that's a 
something you said in our earlier conversation tied to the ego, tied to the sense of what your worth is defined by. I see that uh, scenario of a lot of entrepreneurs can't let go of things. And that is actually a long-term detriment, irregardless of the size of the business, wherever it's going to go, the more control a business owner entrepreneur maintains, the less flexibility the business has to respond to the market. And especially when it's tied up into ego, which is largely an emotional, mental state. And so it it can get in the way of of sound business decision-making and things. And so my philosophy is always to coach our clients towards removing themselves from the business as as they're they're developing the business. Because if growth is good, but excessive growth can actually sink a business faster than you know, some other scenarios. And what I mean by that is too much growth without planning really hits the cash side of the business. Um, and if they weren't planning for, you know, how quickly inventory is going to turn over, what's our inventory coverage? Do we have, a, is our margins high enough to self-fund growth? Uh, do we have to go for leverage? And all these things come into play, but if there was a more stable growth pattern, you, it would be more fulfilled. Uh, you'd probably be less stressed your team would be less stressed. You'd probably have less turnover. And you have all these things that you are difficult to measure, uh, but that have an effect from my observation working with clients is this uh, almost obsessive fixture on growth uh, that drives, in many cases, poor decision-making. Because uh, if you're a business owner and you have a solution, a product that you want to get up to the world, you want to, I would say, you want to have to be sustainable as possible and, and make that, and whether you plan to exit in three, five years, if you're not, if you're not building something sustainable, it's not going to be valuable in the long term for the, the new owners and buyers anyways. So there's a, a, the overused word maybe of balance, but there definitely needs to be more thought around it because it's not just about numbers, it impacts people, it impacts you, the business owner, it impacts your team. It impacts your partners, your vendors, uh, all that thing is derived around you, the business owner, what direction do you want to take things? And so doing it in a considered manner that considers all of those parts and not just the bottom line part, I think is where you see more sustainable businesses that make a bigger impact longer term. Yeah. Or not just the top line part, right? That's the number people kind of get their egos tied up with. I'm seven figure. Oh, I'm eight figure. And I went to a conference last year in the e-commerce industry where they gave gold trophies to those who joined the eight-figure club. You know, and it's like, there was also like silver trophies for the seven-figure club and they got up on stage, but it wasn't quite as much applause, you know? And it was like, ah. So like, that's the top line, right? That's what we put our, that's why business owners hang on to that marketing function so long and lose the sense of discipline that otherwise would sort of rein in what they want to do because- they want to go to that conference and get on the stage and win the eight-figure club trophy. Yeah. And it's a, like I said, it, the long-term effects are, it, I just don't see a lot of positive results in my experience working with clients when that focus, it's so driven by those external rewards, if you will. Uh, and it's tough to not have that affect you as the business owner of, being overstressed. Because I think a lot of the psychological impacts of entrepreneurship are because of that comparison of always trying to 
reach that particular level so that you can get the accolades from from your peers, other entrepreneurs and things. And so my my approach personally and how we run our business and also how I coach clients is, you know, think about what's your goal three to five years? What do you want to do? You have to have some framework. The world changes a lot. As we know in like coronavirus times, the pandemic, it shifted in like a month. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't at least have a, a, a direction of where you want to go. And so when I'm working with clients, I'm asking them those questions because especially on the profit first side is what accounts are we going to set up? Where are you going to funnel your money? And where are you going to intentionally put your money uh, to work in your business? And that's where we have those conversations is what do you really want as a business owner? And oftentimes when we start asking those questions and get them to reflect in a more, not so much internal, but reflect as personal, what am I really trying to achieve? In the business, that's where those things will come out. Like, a little bit of shift of thinking will occur at that point. Many of them are still focused on that growth and then exiting at some point and passing the business on to new ownership. Uh, but many times, it can get people to shift towards a longer term thing of hey, building a business for the long term, which isn't so dependent on me, so that uh, I can pursue these other uh, goals that I have for my life and things, and still. Uh, retain the business if that's the ultimate goal. The easier business project I took up and named it because I want my next 20 years in business to feel a lot easier than the first 20. And I think so much of, especially the first 10 was about this relentless drive for growth with the intention that I would rest after the work was done. I would, I had a software company in the e-commerce space and it was Go, go, go. And I think that one of the, one of the remarks from uh, an employee I had at the time, he was in his 60s and I was in my 20s. And he said, you know, Patrick, um, you can't see the whip, but you can feel the pressure. Yeah. At the time, I, I took it as a compliment. And I don't think in the end, that's what he meant. I think he was trying to teach me something. Yeah, it's, it's a pervasive uh, thing Like again, through these different uh, peers, like, uh, you know, the standards of gap, uh, all of it comes together around this thing of prompting people to have to think this way. And one of my goals is to give them alternative ways of thinking of approaching it. Uh, you can actually build a business that removes yourself and you're, you're there collecting the profit. You can actually do that. And and they'll run through scenarios like of clients that have exited and they go to, they're basically recreating the hamster wheel all over again because that exit didn't produce what they were really hoping for. Uh, and in the so, way of rest or in the way of payoff or what, what, what didn't it produce? It. I think all of it is some, to very factors. Yeah. Some of it is, well, what am I going to do with my time? I have to take that money and put it somewhere else to put it to work. And it's almost a bigger burden and puts them into a place that they haven't been before, which is allocating capital uh, and things. And many times the growth-oriented business owner or entrepreneur hasn't developed uh, the, I'll say, the psychological exercises that an investor needs to have uh, because you have to balance other things other than just growth, growth, growth. Um, there's a lot of other factors that create profitability, which is what investors want. Longer term, that's what they really want. And 
it's a different mentality psychologically and pushing, doing, investing. And it's often why many of them end up, I'll say, failing or, or not doing well once they've exited and they're trying to put capital to work. It's a big shift uh, mentally and psychologically from the entrepreneurship uh, angle of the business. Would, you, would it be safe to say that your Bookkeeping Plus program helps to develop an investor mindset for otherwise growth-driven emotional entrepreneurs? Yeah, yeah I think we're, we, I look at it as kind of a, a counterbalance. We're not there to change their mind, but we're there to provide there's other alternatives or way to approach business, uh, you know, taking the long-term. Because I think many people don't think that's possible. They think it's a rat race and you're always going to be stressed if you're in a business and and you always have to be pushing, pushing, pushing. No, there's other ways to run a business. There's other ways to operate and build purpose and mission and, and fulfillment in a business. You don't have to be stressed all the time. And we use ourselves as an example of how we work with our team, how we develop our systems, our processes, where my focus is to remove myself from as much as of the business, day-to-day business as possible, so that the business isn't entirely dependent on me and things. And that creates less stress by chance. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> Doing yeah, I so much I so much want that for my own companies. And I as I look back on it, I can see how as much as I wanted that for my own team and the kind of culture that we had, there was still an underlying drive. And I find that in cases where I would make up the difference, I might back off on the team and then as, as the owner, now I, I come in and do the extra part to try and not lower the bar that might otherwise feel like sliding back to me. And so one of the things you you made a remark about I wanted to get back to was activity-based costing. Mm-hmm. And it ties in with this, this other thing you told me, which was to measure the owner inputs. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? And so why is it important? So the owner inputs, what I mean by that is it's not specifically around capital putting into the business or, or investing into the business. It's about the time where they're putting the business, where they're putting their time into the business. And like you just talked about, the the entrepreneur business owner ends up filling the gaps. If somebody isn't doing it, it'll fall to to the, especially early on. And that we recognize that. And that's not something we're trying to say, don't do that. What we're trying to say is think long-term when you're doing that. Okay, is this something I need to be doing? Uh, is there somebody better suited to do that? And if it keeps repeating itself, then it becomes, okay, this is not my best use of my time. I need to be doing these two things, which really develop the you know, growth or whatever you, your inputs to the business are. So what I coach my clients on is choose two areas that you can be part of. And you can't do all six areas uh, of the business. You, know, the, you can't be the executive, the CEO, and the admin person, and the salesperson, and the marketing person, and the finance person. And you know, and handling HR, you're not going to be able to do all those things. Especially pick, pick any two. Yeah, pick two and focus on those. And then, yes, there are times that you have to fill in the gap, but think about it of when you're doing that. Okay, what do I need to change so this doesn't happen again? What SOP do I need to put into place? Uh, do I need to hire somebody? You know, be be thinking about it because that's the way I think about it in my own business. Is 
is this the best use of my time? Is this, is there somebody better suited on the team? And if not, then I need to hire somebody for that role and I need to build it into my uh, cost structure and my, and my margins and, and what, what I'm charging my clients for the services we're offering. I think about, I mentioned earlier in this conversation, I, I just came from having coffee with a business owner who had let go of their director of marketing. And the remark was, well, you know, uh, him and his partner really just liked marketing, felt it was important, couldn't really let go. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's probably some constraint in the business too. And, you know, in the e-commerce industry generally, there was a real decline in 2022 compared to the previous year, right? So there's probably some costs getting, you know, reshuffled. But then someone else, you might look at that and say, oh, well, no longer have that professional manager, director of marketing on the payroll anymore, more profit. Great. More profit. But that's not necessarily the, the way to go, is it? Yeah, it's it's a common misunderstanding with business owners that reducing operating expense or overhead is automatically in a transit into profit. You know, you still need revenue to have uh, enough to, to pay that. And so oftentimes, most of the clients that we're working with, we're working with them on the gross margin side where they're trying to squeeze a bunch out on their operating expense, but that's not gonna build profitability. Really what builds profitability is better margins. And if it's in a highly competitive market, well, I coach my clients around increasing the value of their offerings. Don't be static. Don't be cut doing what everybody else is doing because then yes, you'll, you'll have to compete directly against them. Look for ways to enhance value of your offerings. If you're in a highly competitive space, just don't stand still. Uh, find ways to add value to your clients that separates you from your other competitors and things. And so circling back to what you mentioned about uh, cutting back uh, expenses and maybe not speaking directly to that uh, situation, but in general, it's a, it's often a spiral downward for the business owner when they get more involved, back involved in things that they weren't doing before because it distracts them from other areas uh, that they were already doing. So maybe they've added three or four things back to their portfolio when they should just be focusing on on two areas of the business. What's the best use of their time? What do they enjoy doing? And also recognizing when you're doing those things, you're taking that back on. Yeah, you're saving some costs somewhere and it's going to show up on the bottom line, but also there's a a cost in the sense of you're not paying somebody to do that, so you're not recognizing the cost on your overhead or your operating expenses anymore. Yes, you're taking it on, but you're not building in enough space in there for in the future when you want to bring that back on. If you're not recognizing the cost of that and allocating for it, it's going to take longer to go jump back in and add that 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 person back into that role of things. And so, because you cannot afford to delegate it, correct. I think that's you know one of our easier business podcasts. We talk about building teams and delegation and having courage as a leader, and all that. In some ways, is kind of hand waving around the emotional challenge of leading people. But mm-hmm. if the the business itself doesn't have enough profit left in to really pay for all that delegation, it's it's a moot point, right? There's you've you've lost the capacity to follow through on what may be a good leadership practice, but you just don't have the the money and payroll to do it. Yeah, correct. And, and like I said, it's you want to be approaching it with intentionality and, and dispassion, you know, removing as much of 
recognizing emotion, but not removing it entirely of why am I thinking this way? Do I think it's really going to work out? And what's the chances I'm going to be able to execute on? Because as you've probably encountered as well, the idea and execution often are two different uh, outcomes uh, of things that the idea looks really good on paper. And then three months down the road, it's like all these unhidden things come out. Uh, and this is where I think the stress comes in is they have one outcome in mind and then it totally shifts in one another because there was un, there's hidden things or unrealized uh, actions or decisions that become part of a cutback is because it's easy to see the black and white on the numbers. It's not so easy to see the day-to-day -day impact of, of those things. The thousand small decisions. Correct. Yeah. And, and I can give an example in our own business of how over the last like probably year and a half now, uh, so we hired Daisy as our bookkeeping manager, and she quickly identified herself through her work as somebody much more capable than just uh, leading a bookkeeping team. And after about five months, we promoted her to operations manager. And we didn't have a, like a specific role already identified that we needed somebody right at that point for the role. But we were building for the future of, of hey, we, we want to help more clients. We want to work with more clients. And so let's build our architecture out ahead of time. So when growth does happen, it's not going to overly stress out the team and cause other deliverability issues or fulfillment issues or quality issues and things. And so having that person there and seeing where we want to take the business, it was for us, it was a, a no-brainer of moving forward, even though we were probably six, 12 months ahead of where we needed to be to actually fill a role like that and things. And so being proactive and being intentional about where you're trying to take things and then marrying that with the current opportunity, I think is is how we've approached it uh, and things. I think other businesses can, can follow in that, that, that thing because it also instructs your offerings and your pricing and other things like that. And what structure do you need in place to deliver and fulfill your products or services and, and having architected out a plan of where you want, want to grow into things. For someone who's listening to this and maybe they've recognized themselves in some of the stories we've told back and forth, maybe one of them kind of stings a little bit or feels like it hits pretty close. But for someone who is trying to understand that this is a good fit, your bookkeeping class program, are there character, is there a characteristic that you would want to to call out? And I, I don't want to answer for you, but I kind of want to, in some ways, give you what, I, what I'm suspecting. I'm kind of suspecting that so much is tied up in really understanding gross margin. And so I don't know, maybe you could kind of validate this or kind of help understand for someone who doesn't really understand gross margin or is wondering why they don't have enough money left over Maybe a characteristic of someone who would be a good fit for you is your capacity to really take them through the product, the products that they've developed and bring a, a disciplined understanding of gross margin to it. And if that's the case, tell us more about that. Yeah, yeah you're, you're spot on. Uh, I'd say four out of five, uh, maybe even 90% of our clients that engage with us on profit first. Uh, there's two things we end up, we're spending a lot of time and the first one's pretty easy. It's a, it's an expense review. Just make what's each expense, what's it doing with the understanding the activity behind it 
because then that helps guide us in the bookkeeping side of making sure it's allocated or coded properly so that they have that visibility. And then the second thing ends up being the gross margin. It's a longer uh, work through because obviously production cycles, inventory coverage, we've got a lot of moving parts to that, but we want to get on top of that as soon as possible. And so my experience has been many clients do something early on around their pricing, but they never revisit it uh, strategically on a, on a consistent basis, if at all. Uh, it's usually dictated in their mind by what the competition is. And my counsel is, if you want to behave and have the same results as your competition, then think like them and think, hey, I got to cut prices so that I can attract more customers. Well, that becomes a self-reinforcing cycle, a negative one of your, your offering is viewed as, okay, we'll just wait until it's a little bit cheaper and then I'll buy till the next price reduction. And then that cuts even more. And then you, then you have to lay people off or take away from your staffing. And then it just builds a negative cycle. So my counsel to clients is hold fast. In fact, increase prices, but increase the value of your offering wherever possible and think creatively, innovatively. Uh, so some of uh, like a big ticket e-commerce offering. Uh, my counsel was create more training videos, create more installation videos, and maybe create a white glove offering to separate yourself out from your competition. Which What's might cost even more, right? That, with, at a yep. higher price still. Yep. Right? yep, and th that separates you even more. There are people out there who are willing to pay those prices if you put your the right offering in front of you. But most people don't even think about that. They follow the e-commerce playbook, if you will, of getting the traffic in the door and then trying to convert them to buy their product without considering the offering that itself and being entrepreneurial and looking to satisfy the need. And so most of the time it's, hey, let's get a picture of what the all your costs that go into it. And for us, gross margin is, and cost of goods is the other term you know, but we use the term direct cost. And we make that intentional because we want our clients to understand that there's more than just the product itself that goes into your cost of goods or your direct costs. Is that tying into some of the activity-based costing that you right. talked about? Yep. Many times we'll see shipping costs down in the operating expense area. Uh, we move that up to the direct cost or the cost of goods. Uh, merchant account fees, your 3PL costs, um, your packaging, you know, all the things that our rules, everything that creates the value of the final product being delivered to the customer needs to be part of that cost of goods direct cost bucket. That instructs our clients and they see, oh, it's actually, we're, we're only making like 10% gross margin on this. And when you move those things up there, and that includes payroll as well. So if you have people on your team that are adding value to the product, like uh, installing pieces or adding color variations and things like that, that also needs to be part of your direct cost. Oftentimes it gets put down below in the operating expense area. So the client really never knows many times really what their direct cost is. And so that's one of the exercises we have them go through. The first, one of the first things we do uh, is have them go and really understand what all the costs are. Uh, and we do that through a couple, through our first work or our bookkeeping work, depending on, on what, what the client's engaged with us at. Yeah, I think that that sounds so valuable. To, in the beginning of the conversation, I said there's something about having someone come alongside you uh, to do hard things together. And looking at your gross margin and really understanding that can be hard. It can be a little bit like 
<laughs> I want to look at that uh, because it then forces you to really ad- adjust the fact, okay, your gross margins are 10%. Like that's a different business. Yeah. So something will have to change. And then that feels uncomfortable. So yeah. I think there's there's so much value to be able to come alongside business owners in these, you know, doing these hard things together with facing the facts of your real gross margin and what it needs to be. So I think that the you know, your bookkeeping plus program sounds like such a a balm to the overworked, harried soul of the entrepreneur in many ways. And I think about my own, you know, I I sat down with my accountant last week. It's that time of year, and we had set in place a lot of the bank accounts for the profit first system in the last year, and didn't really follow through. Mm. We didn't we didn't really keep the money and the right accounts and the way that it should have been. And I feel like this is a year I want. And I told her, we're going to, we're going to do it this year. We're going to be disciplined in the way that um, I think that system and those habits can be so much a way of bringing more ease to a business. Yeah. It's something that I'll speak to that. That's many of our clients testimonials or, or feedback are around the emotional side of it. So relief, of I can I actually can focus on my business now. They're saying like 80% of my finance I know. Now I can go focus on the 20% of my business that I need to be focused on. I know I've got my payroll covered. I know that I can pay my suppliers on time. You know, I've got these other things. And so I'm going to focus on XYZ in my business now because I know these other areas are, are taken care of. And so most of the feedback has been on the emotional side of uh, I, it's a relief of, hey, I can actually enjoy running my business and creating my products and, and serving my customers again. You know, the fact that you bring up the word focus, I just want to like underlining that three times. And so, so much of my experience has been when we can understand where to focus, it can make such a difference because we're otherwise scattered and we feel the pressure across different aspects. So what you just spoke to, if if more focus and more thus the impact coming from that clarity, you said clarity also a couple of times this conversation. I think that's um, all the kinds of things that, that I'm wanting, you know, and making my business easier too. So Jason, thanks for talking with me about this. I've really, uh, on the one hand, I've, I've learned some things, but also I feel like you've just sort of scratched the surface. I think this is probably like it's a month after month. It's you know, it's a multi-year kind of evolution for a business that, you know, I think that that's where your program could come and be a resource for people over the long term. Yeah, we look to partner with their, with our clients in that in that one. We work partners with them. Yeah. Well, I think we'll stop here. And thank you so much for talking with me about this. Yeah, likewise, thanks. Thanks for giving us the opportunity.